Something dark lurked in the White House basement. Everyone knew it was there, but they were not allowed to speak of it. They settled for a vague title uttered in whispers. The Thing. Archie did not believe in such things in the least, which is why he had been chosen by President Taft to search the basement and reassure the staff that the only dangers that lurked in the shadows were their own imaginations. He had been quite brave, even bored, as he descended the stairs. But as the cavernous basement curved over him, the stories he had heard came back to him, unbidden. They said the darkness came to visit through touch, peering over your shoulder as you worked. Occasionally, it deigned to show itself. A boy with a defeated expression and large, impossibly blue eyes, like the crushing depths of the ocean. A sound rang out in the empty darkness. Archie jumped, nearly dropping his candle. Archie forced himself to calm down. Deep breaths in and out. He felt hot air on his neck. Archie wiped at the spot, touching nothing but his own skin. When he removed his hand, he felt it again. Rhythmic breath. He heard it now, at a different rhythm from his own shallow breaths. Suddenly, he felt an enormous pressure from above, straight down, crushing his head and shoulders, as if it was trying to force Archie into hell. The heat against his neck grew more intense. His legs shook with the effort of standing upright as the weight on his shoulder grew and pushed. His spine nearly folded in two as he fell to the floor. The pressure disappeared. Archie slowly rose to his feet. Then a breath extinguished his candle. Archie took off running. His candle fell to the floor, a thin trail of smoke rising from the bent wick. Something exhaled in the darkness, and the tiny flame leapt to life again, inching ever closer to the hallway carpet. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the White House, the historic home of the President of the United States since 1800, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. 
The White House is one of the United States' most iconic works of architecture. But the building we see today is the result of a sporadic history of destruction and renovation. Initial construction was completed in 1800 as part of what was then referred to as Federal City. The U.S. government opted to build a capital in a Virginia swamp in order to avoid tensions between parties and regions, since both New York and Philadelphia have served as temporary seats of government, and the Southern delegates were not pleased with the commute. The building is white thanks to its practicality rather than symbolism. Lime-based whitewash was popular as a means of weatherproofing porous stone in the late 18th century. So the building we now call the White House was given the same treatment. The name of the White House wasn't added to official documents until 1901, when President Theodore Roosevelt decided it helped distinguish the building from other executive mansions around the country. From Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing to Shonda Rhimes' Scandal, to an alien raid decimating it on our most sacred national holiday, the president's home has become a frame of reference for all of American culture. But the White House is also one of the most haunted locations in the nation's capital. The ghosts that walk this venerable space range from benign to deeply malevolent. The scent of Abigail Adams' laundry follows the staff around. Abraham Lincoln has delivered counsel to later presidents and dignitaries in their bedchambers. Dolly Madison keeps her rose garden safe. But the less well-known of these spirits are marked by tragedy. A British soldier is spotted holding a torch on the front lawn, likely a remnant of the burning of Washington during the War of 1812. A woman bangs on the front doors of the house to beg for a presidential pardon and Abraham Lincoln's own son, William, has been spotted by several people after dying at the tender age of 11. Mary could not bring herself to crawl out of bed. The staff had checked on her several times already, concerned about the railing of the storm outside. The windows were bending inwards because of the wind, and lightning had already scorched the earth but all she heard was horses. Mary hadn't rode beside her husband as the carriage carried their son to his final resting place. It was not expected of her to attend, and Abraham hadn't insisted on her presence, stoic as ever. She was grateful for that. The mere thought of Willie being carted towards his grave was enough to move her to tears. Her little man was only 11 years old, and already his life had been snuffed out. She could no longer feel her heart. It was beating next to the cold skin of her dead son as they lowered him into the cold earth. Her staff asked her to leave this room and head to a more pleasant one. But to Mary, there were only two other places in all the world. The first one, the green room, was where small William had been laid with a sprig of laurel on his lapel. She had placed that sprig with her own hands, not trusting someone else to do it right. He needed to look dignified, older than his scant 11 years. She could not watch as people came to greet Willie's corpse, the way they looked at him as an object, a tragedy, 
rather than a living, breathing boy she had held and nursed and loved. She hadn't returned to the room since. The only other room that existed to her was the second-floor guest room. Willie had taken his last breaths there. The rain and wind buffeted the windows. Mary could not keep her tears at bay. A shiver raced down her spine and continued through the rest of her body. She expected it to pass, but it continued to grow until her whole body shook. Not with sobs now. It was worse, as if her body did not belong to her anymore. Perhaps it didn't. Perhaps she had died in that room with Willie that day, and some dark presence had overtaken her. Her breath came in half gasps, dragging her back to the present, inch by inch. Willie had dealt with something similar before he died. He would shake so hard that his body would hit the floor. His limbs were not his own in those moments, and his breath had been crushed in his lungs. And now, the same spirit that had possessed him was coursing through her. Mary couldn't breathe. Her lungs seized, and no air would come in. As hard as she pushed against the sudden weight in her chest, she could not find relief. She thrashed violently against the bed, still gasping for air. Her maid, Sarah, tried to calm her. Sarah held Mary's body down, but it didn't help much. Mary watched in horror as her own nails dug into Sarah's skin. More people poured into the room and tried to restrain her. A scream left her lips, but she wasn't sure if it had come from her or the creature. They held her down. Her body bucked and bent. Lightning cracked the sky open, and she screamed again. In the corner of the room stood a small figure. It had not been there the second before. Mary's motions slowed. Her throat ached, and her limbs came back to her with a harsh, searing sensation. The staff noticed her change and began to relinquish their tight grip. Mary kept her eyes on the figure in the corner, but every time she began to discern its shape, it seemed to slide from her eyes again. Finally, the weight in her chest vanished. Mary staggered from her bed to the corner in pursuit of the figure, ignoring the pleading hands of her concerned staff. She tried to touch the darkness in the corner, but her hand went through the shape. As she grasped vainly at nothingness, the mass faded away. She called for it to return, desperate to know if Willie was in the room with her. Perhaps he had fought God to come back to her. The figure did not return, despite her pleas. Mary collapsed into sobs again. The staff told the president that his wife was once again indisposed. He stood on the threshold to the room, never venturing further, his eyes searching for her across an abyss that they would not dare cross. A pain so profound that if they spoke its name, they feared both their hearts would give out. Mary's sleep was fitful. The storm only made it worse. She finally fell into a stupor as the rain died down. Her eyes slid closed, 
and her breath calmed. She finally fell asleep, more from exhaustion than comfort. Then she was awakened by a whisper just above her head. Her eyes itched and burned from her tears, but she could make out a small boy just above her. Lightning flashed again, and she got a clearer vision of his features, Abe's features and hers. It was her precious son returned to her. His face was blue, and there were deep red rings around his eyes. Willie's cheeks were sunken in. He looked smaller than she remembered. He walked stiffly, as though his limbs weren't in his control. He was her son, as he'd been buried. There was no light behind his eyes, and the laurel on his lapel was drooping. Drool spilled from his mouth to the floor. She should have been frightened, but all she felt was love. An overwhelming desire to make him feel safe, to hold him again. She called his name, but he did not reply. She embraced him, enveloping him with her body the way she had when he was very small. His skin was cold as ice, and his grip was tight. She struggled to breathe as he crushed her midsection, strangling, clawing with talon-like nails. Mary pried his hands from her waist. This was not her son. Whatever had found a home in her son's body had killed him, and now he had come to take hers. She would not let him. Mary stumbled to her feet. On shaky legs, she took several steps away from him. His heavy footsteps followed her, much louder than a child's steps should be. She raced for the door. It would not open for her. She pulled at it hard. She felt the handle twist in her grip, and the door finally opened. She sprinted down the hallway, searching for help, but no one stirred. She looked for her husband, but he wasn't in his bed. She rushed to his study, knowing he would be working if he wasn't sleeping. She threw the door open to the study and ran in, expecting to find comfort in the warmth of her husband's long, patent frame. But Abe showed no sign of seeing her. There was none of the usual scratching of his writing instrument, no shuffle of papers as he spread his ideas out before him. It was then that the moon emerged from behind a cloud, casting its pale light through the long windows. Abe sat back in his usual chair, serenely, as if watching a play only he could see. He delighted in a joke that was inaudible to all but him, but the laugh stopped in his throat as a gout of blood spurted from the back of his head. He lurched, toppling forward, to reveal a quivering mass of red and gray where his beautiful brown hair should have been. Mary screamed. Something joined her, and it all went black as the sounds of murder and chaos filled her ears. First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln was a fervent believer in spiritualism, hosting seances and consulting mediums to commune with her mother, who she lost at age six, and her children, who had passed away at four and 11. These beliefs intensified in 1862, 
after William died from typhoid fever, while Lincoln himself, found mourning his son, helped him greater understand the suffering of a union fractured by war, Mary retreated into herself. She could barely bring herself to leave her bed. She spent a year in mourning, a full six months longer than was customary for the time period. Her grief led her to develop an illness that mimicked Willie's own fatal illness, and it took several weeks to convince her to leave her bed after his death. A full year after Willie had passed, Mary began attending mesmerist sessions and seances. She hoped to hear from her son, but several people were more interested in giving her predictions about the war effort and her husband rather than helping her connect with her child. Eventually, she began to host her own seances in the White House. There are eight recorded instances of seances in the Red Room, and President Lincoln attended several of them. They brought her great peace, but she was forced to abandon the practice after public opinion turned, suggesting that such beliefs weren't becoming of a first lady. But Lincoln never dismissed his wife's beliefs. It is said that three days before his death, he had a vision of a group of soldiers standing guard by his body after he had been killed by assassination. Mary Todd Lincoln is by far the most well-known seeker of spirits to have occupied the White House. But as we'll soon find out, some spirits seek the living, whether they want to be found or not. Now, back to the story. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln is now described as the work of one man, stage actor and Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth. But the event was actually meant to be a multi-pronged attack by several men against Lincoln, his vice president, Andrew Johnson, and his secretary of state, William H. Seward. The attack on Seward failed, and Johnson's would-be assassin balked at the last minute. The conspirators met frequently at a boarding house in Washington, D.C., belonging to a widow named Mary Surratt. Her son John was brought into the conspiracy, and she may have unknowingly or knowingly moved supplies for the conspirators. The assassination investigation cast a very wide net, and almost all of Surratt's residents were questioned or arrested by investigators. Mary Surratt was the only woman to be tried and convicted for the assassination. And if the courts had their way, Mary would be the first woman executed by the federal government. The jury sent a note to the judge and sitting president, Andrew Johnson, but both Johnson and Judge Advocate General Joseph Holt refused to consider clemency for the woman. The only person left to believe in Mary as she headed to the gallows was her daughter, Anna. Anna Surratt woke to the incessant pounding of hammers. The workers had made their final adjustments to the gallows, and her mother, would be swinging by her neck soon. Her mother was innocent, but that didn't seem to matter anymore. The people wanted blood, and her family would pay the cost of it. Anna's pleas to meet with the president had gone unanswered. Now, she stood among the crush of people in the sweltering July heat and waited for her mother to appear. Anna was 22, and she was about to be an orphan. 
despite her best efforts, Anna's gaze continued to wander towards where her mother's final resting place would be. There was already a set of grave sites carved deep into the earth, and empty weapon crates laid beside them. They would not even give Mary Surratt the dignity of a real coffin. Her mother was just another piece of cannon fodder in the Civil War. A murmur spread to the crowd. Anna looked around to see what the fuss was about. The prisoners had arrived. All of them were hooded, but Anna's mother was unmistakable. She was the only one of the four prisoners wearing a dress. Panic raced down her spine. She thought she was brave enough to see it, but she was wrong. She could not stand in a cheering crowd and watch as her mother's gentle neck was snapped by the swift, short, devastating fall. But Anna would not give up hope. For weeks now, cavalry riders had been stationed near the White House and outside the prison in anticipation of a stay of execution for the federal justice system's first female victim. Anna had begged and pleaded with the papers, with judges, and even at the White House itself, but they had never let her in, and the riders had never mounted their horses, aside from coming today to see the very end of Mary Surratt. President Johnson had not come. No, he stayed silent in his great White House, occupied with things more important than freedom and justice and mercy. For him, it was just another day. She wondered if his pen scratched just a little as he signed his important documents, if his ink spilled on his pristine white shirt, if it reminded him of the blood that was about to be spilled because he had given in to a mob. She heard the rabble outside her mother's boarding house, the unfortunate place where Booth and his men met. She knew they wanted to tear her mother apart, piece by piece. Perhaps they would tonight. Now the riders were saddling up, their job finished. Their departure signaled the end of her hope. But no, she would not let it end like this. There was one person who could save her mother, and she knew exactly where he was. She pushed through the crowd to meet the cavalry. A rider smiled at her. She asked if he could spare a moment and take her back to town. The excitement of the execution had proven to be too much for her, she said. He struggled with the decision for a moment before hopping down and helping her up onto the giant creature. As he lifted his leg to step back on, Anna kicked the planks of the horse and they took off, leaving the cavalry officer on his back in the mud. She was distantly aware of the rider yelling at her to stop, but there was no time. The prisoners were stepping up towards the platform. She could not waste a second. She galloped towards the White House. As she ducked under the trees, she could almost hear the lever for the platform as the first body dropped. The body would jerk and twitch for minutes as the crowd watched with anticipation, waiting for the moment when life would finally leave the man's form. Anna swallowed down her anxiety and kicked the flanks again. Her horse fought her, nearly throwing her off. But Anna would not be deterred. She slowed her movement for just a second, giving the horse a few solid pats on the head. It calmed under a more gentle touch. 
When she kicked this time, the horse took off with her, as though they were running from the very gates of hell. As she neared the stately home of the nation's president, Anna slowed the horse to a trot. They would never let her in if they knew how she came, but her only hope was to rush. She leapt from the horse and took off running. There were several guards stationed in the front. She raced for the door, but they were much faster than her. They pulled her back roughly, and she fought them at every turn. When kicking and punching didn't work, she bit the arm, pushing into her stomach. The guard relinquished his hold for the briefest of seconds, but it wasn't enough for her to escape. There were still others holding tightly to her. By now, the executioner must have moved on to the next prisoner. They would be allowed a few last words, and then the noose would be fitted over their hooded head. They would have no way of knowing when the drop was coming, aside from the sudden sound of the lever letting gravity take its turn. The thought of another person being killed a spectacle for an audience that had already lost so much brought bile to her throat. She renewed her fighting and managed to incapacitate one of the guards with a kick to the groin. The other was still holding her back, but she reared like her horse had and knocked him in the head. He let go of her in shock, and she sprinted for the doors. They were large and intimidating, a symbol of the barrier between the rulers and the ruled. Anna pounded on them with her whole body. The skin around her knuckles split, leaving trails of blood. Soon her mother's skirts would be swishing toward that wooden platform, and there would be no more chances to save her. Anna screamed for someone to open the door. She could barely feel the pain in her hands over the rush of her own adrenaline. Her knocking grew more frantic. They had to let her in. No one came for her but the guards. Anna yelled at the house. She told them that that death, the death of an innocent, would choke them as the rope choked her mother. She kicked and punched using nails, fists, and teeth. But they were too strong, carrying her away like a small child throwing a tantrum. As the imposing doors retreated into the distance, Anna saw her mother waiting for her. There was no hood over her head now. She was standing on the threshold of the great building, the home of her killer. She looked serene, almost forgiving. Then, an invisible rope yanked, pulling her up. She was being hanged. But her neck did not break. She was twitching, resisting, searching for purchase on empty air. Anna's throat was too dry to scream. Her mother's body rose higher, 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 until it was just a speck in the early morning sun. Anna was still struggling with the men that held her when the illusory corpse fell back to earth, crumbling into ash and blood. On the night of July 7, 1865, immediately following Mary Surratt's execution, a mob descended on her boarding house, nearly tearing the place apart for souvenirs before the police intervened. As Mary's body was being cut down from the scaffold, her head fell forward. A soldier remarked, she makes a good bow. 
he was reprimanded for his poor attempt at humor. Anna requested custody of her mother's body for years, but she was never returned to her. Anna Surratt's life was defined by the death of her mother. She tried several times to speak with President Johnson before ending up on the steps of the White House, crying for him to listen. Her brother John was also on the run for his alleged contribution to the Booth murder plot. Anna was forced to sell all her property in order to cover the legal fees her mother's case had racked up. She moved to Baltimore and married William P. Tonry. Four days after their wedding, Tonry was fired from his job at the War Department because of his relationship with Anna. The election between James A. Garfield and Major General Winfield Scott Hancock, the supervisor of Mary Surratt's execution, brought the trial and the execution of the Lincoln co-conspirators back to the public eye. The press hounded Anna for her thoughts, and a fake interview ran in several papers. Her husband, Tonry, stated publicly that the published interview was false and contended that he and his wife remained neutral though he did say that the Republican Party was responsible for Mary Surratt's death. Garfield's presidency also ended in an assassination, four months after he took office. Anna developed a nervous condition that lasted the rest of her life. Though she died in New York, the Secret Service, staffers, and visitors to the White House say they hear pounding on the front door along with sobs and screams for help. The pounding gets louder every July 7th, the anniversary of Mary Surratt's death. But she isn't the only woman that haunts the grounds, and Anna's counterpart is far more malevolent than the morning girl could ever be. Now, back to the story. The White House we know today is the result of over 200 years of building and rebuilding to fit both the needs of the president and the country. The White House was designed by Irish architect James Hoban, mixing colonial, neoclassical, and Renaissance styles. Thomas Jefferson designed some of his own architectural improvements when he moved in in 1801. But much of the building was lost during the burning of Washington by the British during the War of 1812. The building wasn't restored until 1817 and was renovated again in the early 20th century, which included an expansion of the West Wing and the construction of the Oval Office. The whole building had to be restored during the Truman administration as the brick and sandstone structure was in danger of collapsing. It was First Lady Jackie Kennedy who gave the White House interiors their iconic look picking an era for each major room in the building, including Federal, French Empire, and Victorian. Later renovations include a bowling alley in the basement, added by Richard Nixon, and a set of solar water heating panels which were installed by the Carter administration before being removed by Ronald Reagan. Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama would later restore and expand the solar energy elements of the building. The renovation process is not without its architectural losses. One of the most tragic is the White House Conservatory, which was open to the public and supplied all the flowers for events at the residence. 
it was ultimately converted to office space to expand the West Wing. But perhaps it's for the best, because more than bees seem to buzz between the rows of foliage. Nathan loved working at the White House. It made him feel like he was an integral part of the structure that kept the nation running, even if his job was just patrolling at night. After a string of assassinated presidents, security was even more important. And with the 20th century about to dawn, change was closer than ever. Nathan took his duties very seriously, but he also had a secret hidden within the walls of the palatial building. He had a friend that no one knew about. She had never told him her name or even how she came to stay at the White House, but the two had passed many a moonlit night together in the conservatory in between his rounds. Each time they met, she was dressed in clothes that must have been passed down from a relative. She was far too young to be wearing the stiff hoop skirts that had been in style nearly a century earlier but she liked to spin around in them like a tornado come to life. Her hair shone as if there was a lantern hanging behind her head, casting a celestial glow about her. And her voice was soft and sweet, lavender honey that he could find himself drowning in if he wasn't careful. She had approached him on one of his first watches. He had tried to treat her like any unaccounted for guest on the grounds, but she had been kind to him, innocent and generous in every way. With her, he wasn't an overlooked part of the environment. He was a person with his own point of view, and she wanted to hear it. After that, it had been hard to ask her anything. She was always more interested in him than anything else. Nathan had always felt that he was incredibly ordinary, but this nameless woman devoured his stories with laughs and gasps that made him feel like a hero in his own life. His beloved dog, his first day of school, the day he got the job in the nation's capital, they were all triumphs of great interest. He worried at first that she was teasing him, but she listened with such earnestness that he found himself incapable of doubting her. He took his obligations seriously, but he relished his time with her. Sometimes he would cut corners so we could spend more time with her. But she was so patient when he asked her to wait. Nathan finished his preliminary rounds and headed for the conservatory. The moon cast a soft glow through the center windows, while the rest of the glass room remained shrouded in mystery. Tall plants loomed menacingly overhead and had on several occasions snagged him as he moved through the space. But his friend had a way of assuaging all his fears. Usually, she was already there to greet him at the entrance. Tonight, however, she appeared to be missing. Nathan wasn't too concerned. The White House was large, and the conservatory was made up of winding, connected enclosures. She could be just around the next bend. Rather than wait for her to appear, he decided to walk the length of the conservatory as his lantern swung back and forth in his hand. The shadows changed position, making it appear that the darkness was consuming the space, bit by bit. 
He moved farther away from that center of moonlight and closer to the corners, exploring with mild disinterest. Something moved on the wall, stretching the shadow of the plants into a ghoulish creature from a child's fairy tale. Nathan placed his lantern down on the floor quietly and crept into one of the large rows. He moved aside tangling leaves, but there was no stray animal or sudden drop of foliage, nor were there any signs of an intruder. But the shadow kept growing. It ate up the center light, and Nathan watched in silent curiosity as the plants around him began to shrivel and droop. He whirled around, but he was alone, aside from the vegetation shifting in the shadows. The laugh echoed off the walls with no clear source in sight. Nathan tried to move his feet from the soil, but they were held in place. He couldn't see the ground well enough to tell what was keeping him back, but the harder he pulled, the deeper his legs sunk into the earth that had once looked shallow. His clothes were constricting around his legs. Nathan couldn't feel his toes anymore. They'd been swallowed by whatever was holding him captive. He tried to push against the dirt, but it was too deep and he was running out of energy. A chill wormed its way through his body, eating up his strength and his will. A sense of pervading hopelessness replaced his curiosity and fear. When there was nothing left but resignation, a woman came to him. In the dim light, he could only make out her dark clothes and matted hair that stuck up in different directions. Her eyes glowed in the shadows. There was something familiar about her, but his mind was too dark, too suffocated to recognize her. He opened his mouth to speak, but the sound died in his throat. She smirked at him, the palest sliver of moonlight falling over her half-revealed face. Flowers bloomed up her legs, dark as blood and smelling strongly of rust. Nathan's fear crawled through his body. His mind was his again, but all else still belonged to her. I have taken what little value you have, she said to him. For the briefest moment, her appearance changed. She was the woman he had known for months, his dearest friend. Then the woman evaporated, while the smell of rust grew stronger. Nathan collapsed, and when he woke, he had no memory of the garden the woman, or who he was. The White House Conservatory was erected by President James Buchanan in 1858. The large glass-enclosed area had three main rows for plants, which were used in elaborate floral arrangements throughout the house and for any major events. It was also a space open to the public. In 1897, a police officer entered the conservatory because he saw the room was illuminated and believed an intruder might be stealing some of the rarer plants. What he found instead was a tall, beautiful lady dressed in the fashion of the early 19th century. 
He spoke with her for a while before she vanished. The officer could find no trace of the woman in the conservatory, but a glow lingered in the space long after she left it. The officer was unnerved, but took no further action. The next month, the same light appeared, and the officer went to investigate again. He saw the same woman, and this time, she touched him. He passed out. When he told his superiors what had happened, they fired him. The conservatory itself was demolished in 1902 to make room for more offices in the West Wing. The mystery woman has not been seen since. The White House has been the site of the United States' greatest triumphs and greatest tragedies. Its history is ever-changing and constantly growing with each person who takes on the highest office in the land. In 1800, then-President John Adams wrote to his wife Abigail shortly after taking up residence in the building for the first time. I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. No matter what your party, you're likely to say that that hasn't always been the case. Wisdom is slippery, and honesty is even trickier in politics. But the White House has nothing if not a sense of legacy. Each president and their family leave a mark in the residence, and it leaves a mark in turn. Some are happy, filled with picturesque Easter parties in the Rose Garden, or presidential pups running down gilded halls. Others are darker, secret wars and property damage resulting in fire and death. There seems to be a spirit for each beat in the White House's long life, and that life is nowhere near done. If we forget the past, we often repeat it in the present. But at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the past is very eager to make you remember. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the White House, amongst the many sources we used, we found the work of the White House Historical Association extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskin, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>